Section 16 of the Watergate Report, Volume 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Final Report of the Senate Select Committee on Presidential Campaign Activities, Volume 3. Chapter 8, The Hughes-Rebozo Investigation and Related Matters, Part 9. 8. Return of the Hughes Contribution George P. Schultz, Secretary of the Treasury, received a sensitive and confidential memo from Johnny M. Walters, Commissioner of the Internal Revenue Service, on February 23, 1973. The purpose of this memo was to alert Secretary Schultz that the IRS investigative team had concluded that there was a need to interview Charles B.B. Rebozo. Schultz sent this information to John Ehrlichman. In this memo, Walters explained that the IRS had received testimony from Richard Danner about a political contribution Danner made on behalf of Howard Hughes to Rebozo. While the IRS had received this testimony from Danner on May 15, 1972, a formal request to interview Rebozo was not made until February 23, 1973, ten months later. Although field agents of the IRS had requested permission to interview Rebozo as early as the summer of 1972, these requests were not authorized until April of 1973. According to Walters, this delay resulted from a policy decision that he and other top-ranking officials within the IRS made during the summer of 1972. The IRS had concluded that in an effort to conduct business as free of politics as possible, all matters that were politically sensitive would be postponed until after the 1972 elections. When requests were made to interview Rebozo during the summer of 1972, these requests were postponed by Walters personally in accordance with the above policy. Requests from the IRS field agents to interview Rebozo came to Walters on a continuing basis. On February 22, 1973, after the elections, Johnny Walters discussed these requests with William Simon, who at that time was Deputy Secretary of the Treasury. Simon suggested that Walters compose a memo for Secretary Schultz, informing him of the need the IRS had to interview Rebozo. According to Walters, Simon told him that Secretary Schultz would be meeting with President Nixon later that day in Camp David, and the IRS's request to interview Rebozo could be brought to the President's attention during this meeting. At the time, the IRS wanted to talk with Rebozo only to verify information with regard to whether he had received $100,000 from Danner. Walters stated that the purpose of this memo was not to ask for permission, but merely to alert the administration that Rebozo was to be interviewed by the IRS. Walters emphasized, however, that the request to interview Rebozo would be postponed until Walters himself received the go-ahead from Secretary Schultz. As of March 8, 1973, Walters still had not heard from Schultz concerning his request to interview Rebozo. 
Walters, therefore, spoke again with Simon to emphasize the need to interview Rebozo. Walters finally received approval from Schultz on April 7, 1973. Although Walters did not officially inform the White House of the IRS interest in Rebozo until February of 1973, the White House actually had received this information as early as the spring of 1972. Sometime between March and June of 1972, a sensitive case report which mentioned the names of Don Nixon, Charles B.B. Rebozo, Larry O'Brien, and others involved in the Hughes investigation, was brought to John Ehrlichman's attention by Roger Barth, who was an assistant to the commissioner of the IRS. Barth, in fact, provided a copy of the sensitive case report to Ehrlichman. Barth testified that Ehrlichman requested to be kept informed as the case progressed and expressed specific interest in Larry O'Brien's involvement. Ehrlichman recalls that he was continually receiving sensitive case reports concerning the Hughes investigation, but that he did not tell Rebozo of the IRS interest in Rebozo until Barth requested him to do so. After Walters received a go-ahead from Schultz concerning the IRS request to interview Rebozo, Walters asked Barth to notify Rebozo of this. Before notifying Rebozo, however, Barth first spoke with Ehrlichman to get his approval of this matter. Ehrlichman has testified that when the sensitive case report came over, it came over with a note from Barth saying that I need to talk to you about this, and so I immediately called him, and he said at that time, I need to have a green light on interviews of Rebozo. I said, you know, okay, I think it is from my standpoint indicated. I will give you the green light if you are satisfied with that. According to Barth, he met with Ehrlichman, and Ehrlichman showed him a copy of Walter's February 23, 1973 memo. Ehrlichman asked Barth if Rebozo was in trouble, and Barth explained that, as far as he knew, this was just a third-party interview and that the IRS was not planning to do an audit or criminal investigation of Rebozo. With these assurances, Barth has testified that Ehrlichman approved the interview. Ehrlichman has testified that because of the close relationship between Rebozo and the president, Barth was reluctant to call Rebozo directly. Ehrlichman, therefore, agreed to call Rebozo. Shortly after Rebozo was informed by Ehrlichman that the IRS wanted to interview him, Rebozo began to make a concerted effort to return the $100,000. Rebozo testified that in March and April he attempted to contact Richard Danner to arrange for the return of the contribution. Danner, however, does not recall any contacts between Rebozo and himself concerning the return of this money until May 1973. While Rebozo discussed his decision to return Hughes' contribution with various people, including the president, Rebozo has testified that the ultimate decision to return the money was his alone. Rebozo testified that after Hughes left Nevada in November 1970 and fired Mayhew, Rebozo became very apprehensive about the Hughes contribution. So as time went on, I, Rebozo, just thought it better not to use that money for the 1972 campaign, 
and try to see if things cleared up and to hold it for the 1974 or 1976 some point where i could turn it over to the properly appointed authority but matters went from bad to worse with the hughes organization rebozo was also very concerned that this hughes contribution would be disclosed and then any association between nixon's nineteen seventy two campaign and howard hughes would be a source of embarrassment to the president as it had in his nineteen sixty campaign rebozo testified that i didn't want to risk even the remotest embarrassment of hughes's connection with nixon i was convinced that the hughes loan to don nixon cost the president the nineteen sixty election and didn't help him in nineteen sixty two in california although rebozo claimed that dramatic organizational changes within the hughes organization caused him concern he made no effort to discuss this in the context of the contribution with danner or any other hughes employee nor did he seek advice from any administration or campaign officials finally when ehrlichman told rebozo that he was going to be interviewed by the irs rebozo began to make a concerted effort to return the money although rebozo said the contribution was for president nixon he had been hopeful that this campaign contribution could be used in 1974 or 1976. Now, with the IRS requesting to interview him, Rebozo decided that the money could not be used for any campaign purposes, and that the best course of action would be to return it. Rebozo has testified that he discussed the Hughes contribution with the President on two occasions prior to its return. The first conversation took place in Key Biscayne sometime after the 1972 presidential election. During this conversation, Rebozo has stated that he explained the whole picture to President Nixon. Rebozo testified that he could not recall what the president's reaction was to this information, but stated that President Nixon did not offer any advice about whether or not the money should be returned. Rebozo's second conversation with President Nixon was in March or April 1973. This discussion occurred after Ehrlichman had told Rebozo that the IRS would be interviewing him. Rebozo has testified that during his second conversation with the President, Rebozo told him that he had decided to return the Hughes contribution, and that President Nixon agreed with his decision. Rebozo has testified that the next conversation which he had was with Herb Kalmbach on April 30, 1973. The Senate Select Committee has interviewed Rebozo three times and also questioned him in a two-day executive session. While Rebozo, in each of his sessions with the committee, spoke freely about his conversation with Kalmbach on April 30, 1973, he never once asserted that his conversation related, in any manner, to information which he later claimed was protected by the attorney-client privilege. Rebozo has testified that while he was in the West Wing of the White House on the morning of April 30, 1973, he ran into Kalmbach in the halls. According to Rebozo, their meeting was not arranged, and Rebozo was not seeking Kalmbach's advice. Rebozo testified that, I think it was just a general discussion. 
You see, Kambach and I have numerous discussions, naturally on the San Clemente interest. He and I worked on the Yorba Linda house and Whittier property. We talked about things like that. I believe I told him about the Hughes contribution. He had been involved in fundraising, and it wasn't going to be any secret. I guess I just felt the key people should know about it. During an interview with the Senate Select Committee on October 17, 1973, Rebozo stated that he did not ask Kalmbach for any advice or counsel concerning the return of the money, because by April 30, 1973, the decision was already made. If I did ask, it was just for his opinion. As I recall, the part about the Hughes money was just an irrelevant part of the conversation. During an executive session on March 20, 1974, Rebozo testified that on April 30, 1973, he did ask Kalmbach for his judgment, and Kalmbach told him he thought Rebozo should give it back. Rebozo does not recall discussing this topic again with Kalmbach. Kalmbach was also questioned on three occasions by the committee concerning his meeting with Rebozo on April 30, 1973. In each of these sessions with the committee, Kalmbach responded to specific questions about this meeting and indicated that it related to discussions concerning the refinancing of San Clemente and the issue of whether the $100,000 was used in the purchase of San Clemente. During these first three interviews with the committee, Kalmbach never asserted an attorney-client privilege concerning his meeting with Rebozo on April 30, 1973. On a fourth and fifth occasion, in an interview on March 8, 1974, and an executive session on March 21, 1974, Kalmbach, for the first time, refused to testify with regard to this specific conversation because of attorney-client privilege. Senator Irvin, however, on March 21, 1974, ruled that, based on the above-described testimony of Rebozo, he and Kalmbach had not entered into a valid attorney-client relationship. Because of the significance of Kalmbach's testimony pursuant to Senator Irvin's instructions, it is set out at length as follows. Sometime during the week of April 23, 1973, B.B. Rebozo called me at my office in Newport Beach, I think he was calling from Key Biscayne, and told me he had a matter he wanted to discuss with me, and asked when I would be next in the East. I told him I too had some items I wanted to go over with him, and that I was scheduled to be deposed in Washington at 10 a.m. Monday, April 30th, and perhaps we could meet sometime during my one- or two-day stay in the Capitol. Rebozo said he would be in Washington over the weekend, and suggested that we get together Sunday evening, April 29th. At about 7.30 on Monday morning, April 30th, I took a cab from the Madison to the Pennsylvania Avenue front gate entrance of the White House. The person on the desk called B.B. and announced my arrival, and within five or ten minutes he came out and met me. He decided we should use the fish room, which is just off the lobby. We went together and sat in the corner nearest the door. After we had spent ten or fifteen minutes covering various points, B.B. went into the matter he wanted to discuss. 
Beebe said the president had asked him to speak to me about this problem and not Maurice Stans. He said he had personally received $100,000 in campaign contributions from Dick Danner, representing Howard Hughes. He said that he had received two cash contributions of $50,000 each in 1969 and 1970. He said that the IRS had scheduled a meeting with him on this very subject, which would be held two or three weeks hence. He said that he had disbursed part of these funds to Rose Woods, to Don Nixon, to Ed Nixon, and to unnamed others during the intervening years, and that he was now asking for my counsel on how to handle the problem. In response to my questions, he reiterated that the money had been given to him as a contribution by Hughes, and that the expenditures he had made to the several individuals, including Rose and the President's two brothers, had come from the Hughes cash. I then said that my advice was that he should get the best tax lawyer he could find, and give him not only the entire story, but also the balance of the Hughes cash, for return to Hughes, and a list of everyone to whom he had given money from these funds, to which list should be attached whatever backup could be obtained to show the use to which the funds had been put by the recipients. I said that he and his attorney should then lay the facts of the matter out exactly to the IRS. In reply to my advice, B.B. expressed grave reservations about doing so, for the stated reason that this touches the President and the President's family, and I just can't do anything to add to his problems at this time, Herb. I then said I would like to check the validity of my advice with Stanley Ebner, who I identified as the then general counsel at OMB in the White House, indicating further that Stan had been counsel to Maurice Stans's finance committee during the 1972 campaign, and that he had begun his duties with Stans after the new finance law took effect on April 7, 1972. Beebe was very queasy about me talking to anyone about this matter, and I assured him I would not mention his name to Stan, and would talk to him only on a hypothetical basis. Finally, Beebe agreed, and we said goodbye to each other after agreeing to meet the next morning at 8.30 in the lobby of the West Wing of the White House. Immediately after Beebe and I parted, I used the phone in the lobby and called Stan at his office in the executive office building. I found him in, and in response to my request for a few minutes of his time, he suggested that I come right over. I went over to Stan's office about nine o'clock, and after a very brief exchange of amenities, I asked him to let me check my judgment against his as to a special situation that had arisen. I then recounted the facts as earlier expressed to me by Beebe. Stan agreed completely with what I had advised Beebe, and expressed himself that he could not see any other course. I again met Beebe the next morning. I arrived by cab from the Madison and was in the lobby around 8.30. When Beebe came out to see me, I remember that he, we, wandered around the lobby floor looking for a private meeting place. Finally, with Rose Woods along, we went into a small room on the ground floor of the West Wing. Rose left us, and we sat down behind a closed door. 
I began recounting my visit to Stan, including his confirmation of my suggested course of conduct for Bibi to follow. Before I had completely finished, Bibi cut short any further discussion of the matter with a somewhat baffling comment that he saw no problem, but he thanked me for my thoughts. Our entire conversation that Tuesday morning did not last longer than fifteen or twenty minutes, and I recall that I left the White House around nine a.m. Ebner has stated that he did meet briefly with Kalmbach on April 30, 1973. Ebner recalls that Kalmbach discussed a hypothetical situation at that time. Ebner cannot recall specific hypothetical facts furnished to him, since Kalmbach apparently discussed hypothetical situations with him on a number of occasions. In a sworn affidavit, James O'Connor, Kalmbach's attorney, stated that following the meeting with Rebozo, Kalmbach immediately told O'Connor all the details of this meeting, including the fact that Rebozo had dispersed some of the $100,000 Hughes campaign contribution to Rosemary Woods and the Nixon brothers. In October 1973, after Kalmbach was interviewed by the committee, O'Connor dictated a brief memo to his secretary, Margaret Blakely, which he then asked her to read over the telephone to Rebozo. The purpose of this memo was to inform Rebozo that Kalmbach had acknowledged to the Senate Select Committee that he had met with Rebozo on April 30, 1973, that he had testified that the prime purpose of the meeting was to review certain matters involving the President's personal affairs, and indicated that Kalmbach had not given any additional information concerning this meeting to the committee. On January 26, 1974, O'Connor once again asked his secretary to call Rebozo and tell him that if Kalmbach was pressed as to any details of a conversation between himself and Rebozo on April 30, 1973 and or May 1, 1973, that he would state that the discussions were pursuant to the attorney-client relationship. Margaret Blakely has also provided a sworn affidavit to the committee that on two occasions she was requested by O'Connor to contact Rebozo. According to Blakely, both O'Connor and Kalmbach felt it best if she contacted Rebozo rather than either of them, and that if Rebozo had any questions, she would attempt to get the answers for him. During her first conversation with Rebozo in October 1973, she was simply advising him that Mr. Kalmbach was asked on October 12th by Mr. Lenzner to furnish the number and location of all bank accounts in the name of the President and on which he was a signatory, that Mr. Kalmbach was concerned about any possible violation of the attorney-client privilege, that Mr. Kalmbach was questioned by the Special Prosecutor's Office and by Mr. Lenzner on October 11th and 12th as to a meeting on April 30th with Mr. Rebozo, and Mr. Kalmbach had acknowledged that the meeting took place at or about that time. Mr. Kalmbach further advised both investigative bodies that the prime purpose of the meeting was to review certain matters involving the President's personal affairs, including the sale of the Whittier property and the refinancing of the San Clemente property, among other things, 
and that Mr. Kambach was disturbed about reports that campaign funds were used in the acquisition of the San Clemente property. Blakely's second conversation with Rebozo was on January 25, 1974. At this time, she told him, If Mr. Kambach is pressed as to any details of a conversation between himself and Mr. Rebozo on April 30th and or May 1st, he, of course, would have to tell the truth that in the unlikely event he is pressed on this matter, he will, of course, state that these discussions were pursuant to the attorney-client relationship, and therefore subject to the attorney-client privilege. Blakely indicated that during both of her conversations with Rebozo, he made no comment and had no questions. Although Rebozo has denied any other conversations with Kalmbach concerning this matter, Kalmbach has testified that a third meeting was held with Bibi on Tuesday morning, January 8, 1974. He and I had talked by telephone once or twice after he arrived in San Clemente to be with the President during his stay in California. Never at any time during these telephone conversations did Bibi mention, directly or indirectly, our discussions in the White House on April 30th and May 1st. Finally, he called and asked me to meet with him on Tuesday, January 8th. I agreed to meet him at 8.30 in the morning at the mess in the Western White House. On that date, when I arrived at the gate, the guard told me that Mr. Rebozo had left word that I should proceed directly to the guest house in the living compound. This I did, and arrived at the guest house, which is directly across a court from the President's quarters, at 8.30. When I entered the guest house, Bibi told me the reason he had switched our meeting place was because he had learned that a great number of the press were over at the offices, and we would be afforded greater privacy within the compound. Our meeting lasted for about one hour and fifteen minutes, and ranged across a number of subjects. At one point, somewhat near the end of the meeting, Rebozo said words to me to the effect that, Undoubtedly, Herb, I've not told you that after you and I talked last spring regarding the Hughes money, I found that I had not, in fact, dispersed any of the Hughes cash to the several people I named. When I went to the safe deposit box, I found that the wrappers around the cash had not been disturbed, and so it was clear that no part of this money had been used during the several years it was in my box." I didn't make any comment at all to Bibi when he made this statement, other than to acknowledge what he had said. We then went on to other items on the agenda, and I left him around 9.45 and drove up to Los Angeles. End of Section 16 Recording by Maria Casper